At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I want to take us back now to to the question that we asked just before, um, just, just after the kids came in the room. And that is the question, I think, of Palm Sunday. And that question is, who is this? Who is Jesus at the center of it all? I mentioned earlier in Matthew 21, the verses that were read for us earlier, when Jesus came into the city, verse 10, it says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred in saying, who is this? The the question was, who was Jesus? And I think that's the question for you and I to ask and to seek to find an answer to this morning. And so what we're going to do in our, in our time is we're going to look at answering that question, both from the perspective of the crowds who were there in the first century, as well as through our eyes who are looking at this, uh, including maybe a few other details to the story that maybe the crowd missed. So that's the plan today as we try to answer the question, who is this? The first thing I want us to do is I want us to see what the crowd saw. What did, what did the crowd see in Jesus that caused such a stir? What did the crowds in the first century see about him that caused them to, to clamor about him, to wave branches, to sing songs, and to celebrate his entry into Jerusalem? Well, in, in Matthew 21, it, it lets us know how they answered that question. They, they answered that question in verse 11. It says, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the very first thing that we see is that they recognized that it was Jesus, the historical person, the the real guy, Jesus. But as Jesus came into Jerusalem on that very first Palm Sunday, it was really quite a scene which was different from the other times Jesus had come to Jerusalem. This was not Jesus' first time to Jerusalem. He went there as a child. But he also went there, even as an adult, even during his public ministry, John's gospel lets us know, a number of times to celebrate the the festivals that a good Jewish person would celebrate. Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times. So what made this visit to Jerusalem different? That's the question we really ought to ask. And the reason why it was different was because of Jesus. Jesus himself recognized the moment. He knew what was coming. In the verses leading up in Matthew's gospel, it lets us know that Jesus headed to Jerusalem at this time, ready and prepared to lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He knew what was coming. And so because of that, he has a different orientation to the crowds around him. In previous trips to Jerusalem, Jesus would do things like say, hey, don't tell anybody what you just heard me say. Don't tell anybody the miracle that I just worked in your life. He shied away from that type of pomp and circumstance. But when we come to the pages of Matthew 21 and Jesus is making his final entry in his earthly ministry into Jerusalem, he does not hold back. As a matter of fact, the red carpet gets rolled out and he has a moment with all of the paparazzi and all of the people around. It's a presentation. Bible scholar Tom Constable notices it this way. He says, the deliberate preparation for a citywide reception contrasts with Jesus' former approach to ministry. 
Before, he had not drawn attention to himself deliberately, but now he prepared to do so. He had formerly withdrawn from the antagonistic hierarchy, but now he organized a parade so that they could not miss him. Jesus doesn't sneak in the back door. He comes in the front door with a parade around him, very intentionally. And so they recognize, here comes Jesus. But not only did they see that it was Jesus who was coming, but they recognized him, Matthew 21, 11 says, as a prophet. They, they recognized him as a prophet. Now, this is significant. You know, we get used to, we read our Bibles, we read it from Genesis to, to Revelation. Everything seems like it happens in a moment, in an instant. But the reality is God revealed this truth over, over a thousand year period of time. And so as God revealed this, there wasn't a steady stream of prophets. As a matter of fact, there was an era in the history of the nation of Israel that was known as the era of silence. From the close of the Old Testament days until John the Baptist showed up on the scene was over 400 years of silence, no prophets that God gave to his people. So when the crowds in Jerusalem this day say that Jesus is a prophet, it's not just because they're living in Bible times. They're saying, hey, something is happening God is stirring once again, and he seems to be using that guy. And the reason why they would say that is is manifold. First of all, they had heard Jesus preach, or at least heard of the reputation of the messages that he would give. As he spent most of his earthly ministry up in the region of Galilee, he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he preached the Sermon on the Plain, he he interacted with people, he, he you know elaborated on truth in ways that they had never heard before, speaking as one with authority. But that reputation of Jesus as a preacher had developed, the people had an expectation that he was one who spoke for God. He was a a, a prophet. Not only that, Jesus had done many miracles that preceded him, that would allow people to recognize that God was with him in some kind of a special way. Think about just his approach to Jerusalem on this day. He began over in Judea beyond the Jordan. We see that a little earlier in Matthew's gospel. And he began the ascent to Jerusalem, approaching from the east. And on that ascent, the end of Matthew chapter 20 lets us know that he healed two blind men. And then they joined in the parade. I mean, this this was a parade not just to people who were showing up to eat some popcorn and do something interesting. They were people whose lives had been changed. Two blind men who formerly could not see now could see and they joined the parade, pointing to Jesus as the reason why they can now see. That happened in the city of Jericho. And as he continued to move further east, he came to Bethany. And at Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus and his family and those who witnessed that miracle joined the parade. They joined the procession pointing to Jesus as the one who had instigated this. And and as all of this is happening, the people are going, God is no longer silent with us, but God is up to something. He's doing something, and he seems to be using this man, Jesus. They, They recognized him as a prophet. Not only that, but they recognized him as the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, this is significant, because Nazareth was a very insignificant place, very small town. For someone from such a small town to set the entire nation of Israel ablaze meant that something or some things had happened. It wasn't like he was 
He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He wasn't born on television. He wasn't, wasn't born to some kind of a, a, a national celebration. He was born in a, in a stable. He fled for his life to Egypt. He was raised in somewhat obscurity in Nazareth. For somebody with that beginning to set the entire country on its ear meant that something was going on, that some things had happened. Raising Lazarus, the sermons he preached, the healing of the blind man, and and on and on and on. All of those things together caused the crowds to look at Jesus and to want to be around him. And when Jesus allows it, they begin to celebrate. Why? Because they thought he was the son of God? No, Matthew 21 says. Because they thought that he was Jesus, the prophet, from Nazareth of Galilee. Now here's the question for us. Is that all there is? Or is there something more to see? See, here's the thing. Every one of us in this room really needs to acknowledge those three points. They're historical realities. The crowds of the first century and the historical record preserved for us today cannot deny that there was a man named Jesus who did things that people associated with the work of God. And that he was raised in Nazareth, that he did ministry in Galilee, and that he set the nation of Israel on its ear in the first century. We cannot deny those facts. But here's the question. Is there more? I mean, I've not picked up Time Magazine this week, but about this time of year, every year, Time Magazine and news magazines will will run a cover story on Jesus and they will affirm at least to some degree those three things. But is there something more? Friends, I think there's something more. And I'm excited for us to look at it today. So let's look at what else we might be able to see as we look at the events of Palm Sunday. What else do we see? Well, first of all, we need to remember that what else we see is anchored in the person of Jesus. It's not just some philosophy. There was a a someone who came to Jerusalem on that day. Our our faith, our connection to God is, is centered in a someone. God sent his son to this earth. There's a historical veracity to that. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Israel with a number of you, and we went to the places where he went. They're real places. He's a real person, God incarnate. But he really came. He really entered Jerusalem on that day. We need to remember that our faith is is connected to reality. But the second thing that I think we need to see is that Jesus is more than just a prophet that he's the one that prophecy points to. He's the one that prophecy points to. And we see it throughout the Palm Sunday presentation. A number of different prophecies are, are coming to pass. The first of those prophecies that we can see is that Jesus approached Jerusalem from the east. There are a number of different Old Testament prophecies that said that when Messiah comes... He would approach Jerusalem from the east. He would come up and over the Mount of Olives, and he would approach the city from its eastern side. We see that 
Famously, in Zechariah chapter 14, we see it in Ezekiel chapter 11 in verse 1. But I want us to look at another of those references because we we haven't looked at it together, but it's another important reference to, to Jesus coming. And that is in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 1, it says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. The Old Testament scriptures, not in one spot, but in multiple spots, let the nation of Israel know and let all of history know, including us today, that when Messiah comes, he will come from the east. When Jesus rolled out the red carpet and presented that day, he was fulfilling prophecy coming from the east. And interestingly, when Jesus comes back, when he comes back to the earth to establish his kingdom and to reign in glory, which direction will he approach Jerusalem from? He will approach it from the east. Not only is there the prophecy of him approaching from the east, but also there's the prophecy that he would come to them riding on a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, quoted here in chapter 21 of Matthew verse 5, when it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of the beast of burden. That's a quote from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. He would be approaching from the east, riding a donkey. He was not just a prophet. He was the one that prophecy pointed to. Not only was he coming from the east, not only was he coming on a donkey, but but also he was coming on that day. He was coming on that day. Daniel chapter 9 reveals a prophetic clock. It let God's people know when Messiah would show up in Jerusalem. In, in chapter 9, verses 25 and 26 of Daniel say this. They sound like confusing verses. I'll explain a little more of the context of it in a second. But it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a time of trouble. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. Here's what those verses are saying. It's saying that there would come a time when a decree would be issued for the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. At at the time that Daniel's prophecy was given, the people were in exile, and God gives a prophecy that says that there will be a decree that will be made for the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And what God is saying is when that decree is given, a clock will start. And there will be one set of seven, and there will be another set of 62. And when you add those, six, those seven to those 62, and you think of them in terms of seven years, you run a clock of roughly 490 years, 483 years, that would take you from the time that the decree was issued to rebuild Jerusalem, which was given in the days of Nehemiah, all the way up to when Jesus came on Palm Sunday to the day. It's as if God is in heaven with a stopwatch saying, go. And when those days were accounted for, Jesus showed up. 
He was not just a prophet, friends. He was the one prophecy pointed to, to approach from the east, to ride on a donkey, to present himself in Jerusalem on that day. All of those things were by the decree of God. That's who Jesus was. He was not just the one who spoke for God, but friends, he was the one that God spoke about. We can't just say Jesus was a good man connected to God because there's hundreds of years of prophecy. Things said hundreds of years before he came to the earth that in Palm Sunday we see fulfilled in Jesus. And that's just on the Palm Sunday account. There's prophecies about his birth. There's prophecies about his death. There's prophecies about his resurrection. There's prophecies about his second coming. They all point to the reality that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than just one who has some God aura about him, but he is the one that God spoke about in the prophecy. He is the son of God himself. Come for us. He's Jesus. He's the one prophecy points to. He's also the king. He's the king. We see this inside of the Matthew 21 account. At the beginning of verse 5, it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. This is a, a quote from Isaiah chapter 62, 11, but it's applied here to Jesus. At Palm Sunday, he comes with a revelation of the fact that he is the king. He shows up and is celebrated in that way. We can't miss that when we see this story. Not only is he, this, this quote from Isaiah 62 mentioned here, but also Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to present himself as the king of kings. And we see this in a couple of different spots where we're able to make sense of this. One, one of those passages is in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 to 14. In 1 Chronicles 17, we see God issuing a promise to King David in the Old Testament times. Again, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. But the promise that God gives says this. It says, when your days are fulfilled, God says to David, to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. There was an expectation that there would be a descendant of David who would establish a throne, and he would sit on it forever. It's a promise that God gave to David a thousand years before Jesus was born. And the nation was waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem and they are talking about, behold, the king, it's not just another king, but it's the king, the king of kings, the one who will reign forever. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says this about Jesus' birth, a famous verse that we read it at Christmas time in verses 6 and 7, but it says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, there was a promise given to David that one day a descendant of his would establish a throne that would never end and the government would rest upon his shoulders. Isaiah tells us that when Messiah comes, he'll be the one to fulfill that. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it's a reminder that he is coming to establish just such a kingdom. He's the king of kings. Not only that, but we see his kingship identified by the waving of the branches and by the laying down of the cloaks. These are some of the most familiar things about the Palm Sunday story for us. We still have a few palm branches that didn't make it out with the kids uh, up here at the front, but that's to be expected because that's actually how it went down. As Jesus is coming on that donkey, he doesn't sit directly on the donkey. They take off their clothes and they lay him on the donkey so that he could sit on the clothes and not on the animal itself. It's a sign of honor as a king. They wave the branches and they lay them down as a symbol of here comes the king. It goes all the way back to the Maccabean era, just about 150 years before Jesus was born where those branches would have been waved before the entrance of a conquering hero, before the entrance of the king. When the people are waving that, there's a a hope and an expectation that Jesus was the king that they had waited for, the one who would kick the Romans out. That was their expectation. But as we look at it today, we know that his kingdom was way bigger than just some Romans. He had way more important things to establish. Opportunities for people in Norman, Oklahoma, and in Central Asia, and to the ends of the earth, be connected to the God who created them forever. That's what Jesus was up to. Cloaks and branches, symbols of the kingdom that would know no end. Not only that, but he was on that donkey, right? The other thing that we're familiar of. And interestingly enough, this is the only animal that we know of that Jesus ever rode. Riding an animal was not normal in that era. Only rich people got to do that, and Jesus didn't live a rich life. But in this moment, he allowed the treatment that he deserved to symbolize the reality of who he was. So he gets on that donkey, and he he rides into that town. It was a reminder of the royalty. The fact that he's on a donkey, that was how Solomon entered the city. Donkey and not a horse because he was coming in peace and not to make war. Jesus symbolically rides the donkey into the city as a reminder of who he was and what he was there to accomplish. He came as the king. But another thing that we see inside of this passage is that we need to see that he's the Savior. We need to see that he's the Savior. As he's entering the city, the, the people are singing. We, we sang these words earlier. Hosanna. Hosanna is what they were singing. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing the words of Psalm 118. A psalm of celebration. There was an expectation that Jesus was coming to save. That's what Hosanna means. God save now. There was a recognition that he was the Savior. Now, again, they were singing that with a hope that he would save them from Rome. But friends, remember, Jesus had something even more significant to offer. He wanted to save them from their sins. 
He wanted to make a way not only for the nation of Israel, but for all of us to have a relationship with God that would endure, that would go on forever and ever, that we could have eternal life. Jesus made that possible. The song that they sing pointed to the salvation that he would bring. But guess what else pointed that way? As Jesus approached from the east, you know where he entered the city of Jerusalem? As he approached from the east, he would enter at a gate that was called the Sheep Gate. The ancient wall around the the city of Jerusalem had a number of different gates, a number of different ways in. And one of those gates, the gate that faced east, was known as the Sheep Gate. You know why it was called the Sheep Gate? Because at the Passover, that was where the, the sheep would enter the area where the temple was so that they could be offered as a sacrifice. Jesus' entry from the east through the sheep gate was a reminder that he was coming as the Lamb of God to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Friends, they were having a party around Jesus. He was allowing them to have it, but they were just seeing him as a prophet, somebody from Nazareth and Galilee. But they were missing that he was actually the King of kings, the Savior of the world who would offer his life for the forgiveness of their sins. So given all of that, let me just ask you the question. Who is this? Who is this? Who is Jesus? It's not a rhetorical question. It's a real question for everyone in this room to answer. Who is he? Is is Jesus Someone like the crowds would say, just a person connected to God, lived in the first century, established some kind of religion. We have some ceremonies connected to it. Is that, is that who Jesus is? That's, that's who Time Magazine thinks Jesus is. That's who many people around us think Jesus is. is it, do we think of him like the crowds think of him? Or do we think of him like Christ's followers think of him? We think of him as the Savior, our Savior, my Savior, your Savior, as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. C.S. Lewis famously said that we only have three options when it comes to identifying who Jesus was. We can either say that he was a lunatic, that he was a liar, or that he was Lord. Someone who did the things Jesus did, made the claims that he did. There's only three options. He was either a lunatic, he was lying, and he didn't know it. He was a liar, he was lying, and he knew it. Or he's Lord, he was who he said he was. Friends, when we look at Palm Sunday, when we think of all that was happening in that moment, I think it's a strong argument that of those three, there is one choice. That Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, then that changes everything. It changes our salvation. Because if he's Lord, then any one of us who trusts Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, whether that happened as a child or whether that's going to happen right now in this moment, then our eternity is forever changed. And if he is Lord... If he is the one that prophecy is about, not just the prophet, 
then it changes so many things. Just a few sentences just for reflection and application. If he is the one who prophecy points to, then think of your application. If he is the king, then if he is the savior, then friends, who is this? And how will you respond today? You respond in faith. And this Easter, celebrate him for who he really is. Not just, not just who the crowds say that he might be. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to worship today. Thank you for the opportunity to lift your name up and to sing Hosanna together, echoing across history the reality that, that you are the God who created us, and Jesus is the, the Lord of all, the King of kings and our Savior. Father, may every heart in this room be trusting in him today for the forgiveness of our sins, for our hope for eternity, and following him in obedience every day of our lives. Thank you. We pray these things in his name.